So I'm not quite sure what to call this talk tonight, but I think I'll call it the, the life that doesn't go away. Over the generations, of course, after the Buddha's death, as happens in many spiritual traditions, you know, as the Dharma went into different cultures and took the shape of those cultures and different traditions were born, um, you know, there started to amass a kind of pretty big collection of stories. Stories about the time, the Buddha, stories about, you know, the great yogis of, of the time. And uh, these stories, uh, you know, I think it's, I just want to say these are teaching stories. So it's very important not to take them too literally. And it's also just good to note that most of these stories have happy endings. And, you know, again, that's understandable. You know, it wouldn't really inspire people to practice if every story had really a miserable, tragic ending. And it's kind of similar, you know, like in Gaia House literature. You know, we don't offer the invitation for people to, you know, come and experience what it's like for a week to... To, to sit with an aching body, you know, and be familiar with a chaotic mind and, you know, a little confusion and drama thrown in here and there with a bunch of people you don't know. Uh, you know, that wouldn't really attract people to come. You know, we talk about peace and we talk about calm and, you know, we talk about liberation and, uh, you know, hopefully that appeals to you a little so I want, I want to start tonight with a story from a, a yogi called Milarepa. Milarepa. He was uh, pretty famous for his perseverance and his insight and his courage and, you know, all in all, one of those guys, you know, the saints sort of thing. Anyway, Milarepa. He, he was practicing high up in the mountains, living in a cave on his own. And he went out one day to, to collect nettles for his supper. And when he returned to his cave, he found his cave had been invaded and occupied by a host of angry demons. Clearly, this was not in his script. He was on retreat. So he did everything he could to get rid of the demons. He pleaded with them. He prostrated to them. He said mantras. He called upon all of the great bodhisattvas of the past to come and protect him. He tried to intimidate the demons. And through all of his strategies, one by one, the demons disappeared until only the last and the most vicious of the demons remained. And Milarepa realized that he could do no more. You know, he'd, he'd done every strategy, nothing worked. And so he realized he had to change some things, change his own mind. So he turned towards the demon and he put his head into the mouth of the demon. And it's said that in the face of Milarepa's surrender, the demon was vanquished and turned into a rainbow. 
that's the ending. That's the end of the story. There isn't any more. <laughs> that's the end of the story. So this was, of course, a happy ending. In this, of course, a very good, good, good ending, good outcome. Now, I'm sometimes tempted to, not because I'm a depressive type, really, but I'm sometimes tempted I'd like to rewrite this story with a different ending. You know, what if the demon didn't go away? You know, what if the demon took up what was apparently Milarepa's last invitation when he said to the demon, fine, move in, stay a while, bring your friends, bring your family, set up house. What if the demon had said, good? <laughs> that's what's happening. So that's what this talk is about. What do we do with a life that doesn't go away? There's a lot that doesn't go away, isn't there? There's a lot that doesn't go away. Some of you sit here with chronic illnesses that aren't going to go away. You might sit here with losses that won't go away. They will always be part of your, your life. You might sit here with repetitive patterns that don't seem to go away. There's much that doesn't go away. And I, and I think the real question of this path is, is, you know, what do we do with that life? I mean, in many ways, the primary suggestion is that, that we stop wanting it to go away. Then we have a, a path, then we have a relationship. Now, when the Buddha talked about his teaching, he, he, when he got up from the Bodhi tree, apparently, after his awakening, he didn't get up from the Bodhi tree and talk about mystical experiences, transcendent states. He got up from the Bodhi tree and he began to talk about what he'd understood. Not what he'd gotten, but about what he'd understood. And the way that the Buddha then framed that understanding, as many of you will know, was in the framework of, of what are called the four ennobling truths. Now, in many ways, the, the Buddha kind of used a medical model for this. And in fact, you know, at times very much referred to himself as a healer, as a healer, as a doctor. So the medical model that the Buddha used for the Four Ennobling Truths was, begins with a diagnosis. Let's see what the illness is. Let's identify the problem. Let's name what's going on here. And as John has spoken about quite a bit, he named the problem as dukkha. So then you continue in that medical model that the Buddha was very clear that if we're going to understand about how to bring this ailment to an end, this illness to an end, we need to understand how it's caused. It was very clear. That is, we, take, we demystify it. We take the bewilderment out of it. We really understand that, that the illness, in this case, is, is not a static state, that it is something that is created and recreated over and over again. So he looked at the cause and he says, well, you know, it looks kind of obvious. We keep wanting life to be different than it is. We keep wanting the moment to be different than it is. 
we keep wanting ourselves to be different than we are. And that this wanting turns into insistence. And the form that that wanting takes is this form, as John mentioned last night, of tanha, this unquenchable thirst, this, this endless trying to rearrange the world of conditions so that it serves us well, the endless argument with impermanence, the attempt to find stability amidst the unstable, to find the unchanging amidst the changing. The tanha, that endless endeavor to try and find some firm ground to stand upon when there is only groundlessness. So we identify the cause. What is it that keeps the illness going? What is it that keeps inflaming the illness? And it is tanha. Then he says we make a prognosis. You know, what's, what's the prognosis here? We, and he, the Buddha was very clear on this. The end of dukkha. That's the prognosis. Now, when the Buddha speaks about the end of dukkha, he's not speaking about ending the first two forms of dukkha, which John has been very clear about. He's not speaking about becoming immortal, about you know, somehow eradicating death or illness or, 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 or everything that the body can experience. He's not talking about eradicating impermanence and suddenly discovering the secret of permanence. He's not talking about eradicating the instability of conditions, which is the very nature of all conditions. What he is speaking about is bringing to an end the third dimension of dukkha, which is the emotional and psychological distress, confusion, pain, anguish, suffering, which is born of not understanding the first two domains of dukkha. So that's the prognosis the possibility of bringing to an end emotional, psychological confusion and distress and pain. Then, of course, he says, once you've got a prognosis, you have to look for the cure. And he presented this in terms of there is a path to the ending of dukkha. There is a, a consciously cultivated, intentional way of being which undoes this pattern of creating and recreating distress, and there is an end of dukkha. So in many ways, when the, it's said that when the Buddha really simplified his teaching, he, he just put it in these two lines, you know, that there is dukkha and there is an end of dukkha. That's it. That's the whole of the teaching. Now we fill in the gaps. <coughs> Now, what he spoke about is, you know, the many ways that we, we take a wrong path in trying to bring dukkha to an end. It, it's, not, it's not wrong in terms of being ill-intentioned, but simply that it's unsuccessful that it doesn't have a good outcome. So the Buddha went to, you know, the mind 2,500 years ago, not so different than today, as we've mentioned. So he spoke about the different ways that we, we find ourselves as human beings reacting to or trying to understand or trying to fix the life that doesn't go away, particularly the life that we want to go away. So he says, one of those reactions that keeps 
Dukas, Duka going, which, and it's a reaction that is as timeless as, as Duka itself, is, uh, no, actually all of these reactions. One of them is despair. I'm hopeless. Nothing can change. This is the way I am. It's the way I've always been. There's nothing I can do. I'm helpless. So I just try to cope as best as I can. Is it another of the responses or the reactions that very much keeps these cycles of, of distress going? Of course, is in the form, the very familiar forms of, of anger and, bla and, and blame. You know, if there's pain, if there's struggle, if there's suffering, it has to be somebody's fault. Anger is what we do with helplessness, isn't it? It's what we do with helplessness. You know, it's got to be somebody's fault. If I can figure out who caused this, you know, if I can say it's your fault or it's my fault, you know, I feel like a, somehow I've, I've kind of made sense of this, you know, and we can spend a lot of time in that particular reaction. And it rescues us from feeling powerless. But in a way, of course, the outcome is not so good. And is it? It doesn't really change very much. In fact, it kind of adds another layer of distress upon distress. Another reaction is, is, is kind of um, this sense of guilt. I think this is a more newly introduced reaction, perhaps more in our culture, you know, I must have done something wrong to deserve this. You know, it must, it's because I've made mistakes or it's because I'm not very good or I'm not very worthy, you know, and, and that's why I have this loneliness and this, this despair and this struggle and this confu confusion. It's telling me something about my inadequacies and my incompleteness and my, my stupidity or something. Now, what the Buddha very much pointed out is that they, these are inadequate responses in a way that keeps us very stuck. So he said there's another response which is probably much more helpful. And he primarily put this other response down to investigation. Let's actually understand what's going on. Let's turn towards this. Let's give ourselves credit. Let's, let's credit our intentions, let's give credit to our intelligence, let's give credit to our capacity. And let us turn towards this life and understand it. And he says that this, this quality of investigation is, is likely one of the most central and necessary awakening factors. Because in a sense, it's wanting to know you know, it's actually wanting to know, it's wanting to understand. And, and that, that is where we find the, the genuine willingness to meet our life with all its spectrum of experience. And this is where actually the Buddha said we, we actually do find a taste of freedom through this investigation. This is where we find the psychological, the emotional transformations born of insight that bring suffering to an end. Now he said that we bring this investigation not only to the events of our life or the events of our body that don't go away, 
But he said it's most important to bring this quality of investigation to the most seemingly intractable, stubborn, embedded, repetitive patterns of our own hearts and minds. I love it. Zen, Zen traditions have, have wonderful, you know, a lot of wonderful kind of questions and haikus and things and about happiness. You know, but the, I like this one. You know, when a Zen, a Zen teacher is asked by a student, he says, what is the secret of your happiness? And the teacher answers, complete and unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. <laughs> For most of us, that's our life, isn't it? Complete and unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. So first we're asked to really investigate what we understand about distress, to see the pain in life and the uncertainties and, and the struggles that are unavoidable and those that are optional. And we're asked actually to distinguish between these two. Both we are asked to cooperate with to know that we can be the most absolutely mindful person in the world and we will still get ill. We will still age. You know, the average age now for the onset of your first chronic illness in this country, I understand, is 57. For some, it's much younger. For some, it's much later. But knowing that this body has a built in, what did you tell me it was, a kinshina? That. Obsolescence. A built in obsolescence means we're all up for this. It's what doesn't go away. And here we ask ourselves, what kind of transformation of heart would be asked of us? to find peace in the midst of that which doesn't go away? What kind of understanding would be asked of us to find compassion in the midst of that which feels unbearable? What kind of information, uh, transformation would be asked of us to be able to find the grace inwardly that stops saying, this is unfair? And I had a, a student once who said to me, you know, she, in the, had recently been diagnosed with, with a very difficult illness. And she said, when I stopped asking the question of why did this happen to me and could say, why should this not happen to me? She said, that was when the healing began. That was when the healing began. So this, this is an invitation it's really realizing that mindfulness is not a magical wand, and certainly in this teaching, mindfulness is not an end in itself. Mindfulness is the platform upon which understanding begins. But it begins here. It begins here to, to know what it is to find healing amidst that which is broken. There's a powerful learning, I think, in us beginning to see what it means to be with the simple truths of every moment, no matter how hard they are, and to begin to see that actually with, with this practice we can begin to 
change from being people of habit and agitation to being people of wakefulness. Now, some suffering, of course, is not within the domain of, of what happens through just the nature of the body and the nature of the change. Some suffering in life is optional, but it doesn't feel optional. Hmm? Depression doesn't feel optional. You know, fear doesn't feel optional. You know, deep beliefs in insufficiency don't feel optional. But actually, this is the teaching of, of this path, is that these actually can come to an end. This is what truly can be transformed. I think many of our most intractable and stubborn psychological and emotional habit patterns that can be so painful, they can actually feel to have such a long history that they become embedded, of course, into our sense of identity and sometimes our sense of who we are. You know, the patterns of self-judgment, of obsession, of depression, of anxiety, of feeling unworthy. They can be patterns that shadow our, and haunt our lives. And of course, what they do is they leech. They leech joy, they leech compassion, they leech well-being from our hearts. And sometimes these patterns seem to have a beginning, you know, right before we were even ever born. Have you noticed that? I mean, I come, you know, certainly in my family, I, I come from a, you know, a long lineage of really impatient people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I mean, I've had to do really a lot of work in my own practice, you know, to develop patience. And, and my family finds it strange. They find it aberrational to have a patient person in the family. You know, so they constantly try and test it. You know, she's, she's not really patient. You know, she's just pretending, you know. So if we poke her hard enough, she's going to lose it. You know, she's going to lose it. It's weird that I'm aberrational in my family. You know, my father introduces me. He says, this is my daughter. She's calm. I mean, it's so weird in my family to be calm, that, that you know, to have someone who's calm, that they, they, it's kind of like someone from outer, outer space, sort of, you know. They don't quite know what to do with it. But I realize the generational nature, you know. My, my father's an incredibly impatient person. He's one of the most impatient people I have ever met in whole, my whole life. But he says he's nothing compared to his father. <laughs> He says, you want to meet him, you should have met my father, you know. And, and he's actually kind of proud of it, you know. So it, it actually, we see some of these patterns within ourselves. We think, well, where did that start? You know, what, what was the point when I started to describe myself as being this kind of person? Hmm? What was that point? I mean, you know, do you remember it when you started to describe yourself as being a sort of jealous type or an angry type or you know, an unworthy person. It's kind of, it's an inheritance often. Now, these patterns, I said, they seem to get, seem to be so familiar, you know, they're so familiar that they, they feel woven into the fabric of our being. And yet we're actually not lost. We're not lost and we're not helpless. And I think that, that is the genuine invitation and promise of this practice, is that we are not lost and we are not helpless. 
first of all, in our understanding about pain and suffering, particularly emotional patterns, it's so important we stop seeing them as being indicators of us being somehow wrong. These are suffering. You know, when you're in the midst of, of, of anger, when you're in the midst of jealousy or in the midst of, of anxiety, you know, we, we move so quickly into that place of, of designation and definition, you know, I am, that we forget that this is actually suffering. And that this is a kind of suffering that merits as much compassion as any illness in the body any injury to the body. And the Dalai Lama once said, if you really want to understand compassion, he said, he said, look into the eyes of a mother as she holds her sick and fevered child. There's something about the beginning of, of transformation begins with having empathy for our own struggles. Just as we would have to allow our hearts to tremble in the face of the difficult, rather than to judge. To allow that quivering of the heart in the face of anger, or the face of contractedness, or the face of, of, of depression, and to have our hearts tremble, and to know this is suffering, this is pain that merits compassion. To hold it in the same way as a parent would hold their sick and fevered child. But it's a challenge. You know, 2,500 years ago, you know, people were coming to the Buddha and saying, you know, what do I do with this mind that feels so habitual and so stuck and so repetitive, you know? What do I do with this mind that keeps going around the same old loops time after time after time? Now... The, you know, the Buddha was actually pretty good at, with this stuff. Uh, you know, he didn't just say, be mindful. <laughs> you know, or he didn't just say, you know, tough it out, you know, or that's the way things are. He was actually pretty good with this stuff. And, you know, there's a whole group, uh, several discourses, where the Buddha is actually addressing this particular question. What do I do with that that feels so intractable that it feels like it's going to be here forever? Hmm? So, we begin to approach, uh, begin a dialogue. To, to, and it's a very important dialogue, I think. And this is the dialogue between mindfulness and wise effort. Because as I say, the Buddha did not just say, be mindful. He said, if we're going to understand the end of dukkha, then we engage with dukkha in creative and dynamic ways. We don't just watch it, hoping that that's going to make it go away. It won't, believe me. Um, but we start to talk about this dialogue, you know, this family of mindfulness. And part of the family of mindfulness, of course, is this, this interplay between mindfulness and wise effort. Wise effort, wise engagement. It's why, you know, in, in, you know, in, in Pali, the word, for, the, the word that we call meditation is actually bhavana. And bhavana means to cultivate to bring into being. So clearly, this involves something more than just watching. 
It's about actually what we're nurturing, what we're cultivating, and what we're bringing into being. And the Buddha begins to talk about a number of different pathways that can be cultivated in the face of the intractable and the stubborn and the repetitive that are actually applications of insight. Okay? And this is not this is actually concerned with changing what's there. If we're just quite frank about it. It's not about resigning ourselves. Oh yes, I'm, I'm anxious. I've always been anxious. I'll always be anxious. It's not just, you know, and I'm just going to learn to be more kind towards anxiety. No, that's not what's being said. The Buddha said, dukkha comes to an end. For dukkha to come to an end, it needs to be understood, but it needs this creative dialogue. And I know, I know this is a little challenging sometimes to you know, some mindfulness teachers I talk to, you know, because they don't really like the ideas of changing something, you know, it often gets confused with manipulating, it gets confused with having goals, it gets confused with non-acceptance, but actually the cultivation of wise effort and the application of insight has nothing to do with manipulation. It has nothing to do with, with, with more strategies to fix. It has to do with bringing dukkha to an end. And I, I think it's very important to, to understand that because I think there's, there's always this question, I think, up for us. You know, when, when is it the, the, the correct and the appropriate and the skillful and wise thing to do simply to be and stay with what is? And when is it actually the appropriate and wise and action to actually change what is. We're not actually changing always what is, but we're certainly transforming our relationship to what is, which in turn changes what is. That's good to see that. Okay, so the Buddha speaks about uprooting uprooting the mostly the embedded psychological and emotional views that cause suffering. Now this dialogue, I think, between mindfulness and wise effort, has, it's a personal dialogue, but it also has something to do with how we are in the world, isn't it? You know, if, if we go out in the world and, and we, you know, if you go out in the driveway and you see somebody about to throw a rock at one of your fellow yogis, you know, it's not that helpful, is it? Just say, being very mindful, seeing, <laughs> hearing. It's not, very, it's not very helpful, is it? I, I mean, in a bigger area, you know, in the fields of injustice and, and, you know, racism and oppression and cruelty, you know, this is actually asking for our engagement, not for something more. I mean, our engagement begins with our mindfulness, but our engagement begins with the commitment to bringing to an end suffering and the causes of suffering. And it's exactly that kind of commitment inwardly which is also asked of us in this path. Now, when we talk about cultivation, we're talking about something that's a little bit experimental here, and it's very important that it's not an agitated experiment. But it's it's been very clear that you know how our mind is existing in a state of potentiality, and it's always been shaped by something. 
you know, it's being shaped by that which is helpful and it's not that which is unhelpful. You know, our mind is being shaped by moods, by thoughts, by perceptions, by views. It's always being shaped by something. So the mind is living in a dynamic state. And that dynamic state seems to end when the mind gets primarily shaped by repetitive patterns. That's when we describe ourselves as a type. We've lost that dynamic potentiality of the mind because it seems to get overtaken by these repetitive emotional habits. You know, so we say then, I'm an angry type or I'm an anxious type. And I have a lot of trouble with this typing business, you know, and it gets it gets kind of bandied around in Buddhist circles and other circles, you know. And and maybe there's some skillfulness to it if it if it helps us to see that we have a, a certain inclination, you know, then then maybe it's helpful, you know. It's it's like somebody once said to me, you know, you think about greed types, hate types, and deluded types, you know, as if the world was that simple, you know. And we aren't definitely a mixture of the three. But never mind that. But, you know, they said, think about going to a party, you know. And if, if you're a greed type, you know, you'll go to a party and you'll be checking out the food, you know, and who looks good to talk to, you know, who's got the nice clothes, you know, the best place to sit at the table. He says, you know, if you're an angry type, you'll go to the same party. You'll be looking at all the schmucks who turned up and wonder why the music is so bad and why didn't they get a better chef. And if you're a deluded type, you'll go to the wrong party. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of simplistic, but we can sort of see that we have certain inclinations, don't we? <laughs> we do have certain inclinations. But what we do see is that what we dwell upon does become the shape of our mind. And if we dwell upon it frequently enough, it does actually become the shape of our identity, our character. And it does indeed become the shape of our world and the shape of our aspirations and the shape of our sense of possibility. And if I truly define myself by that which is limited and suffering, the shape of my life looks quite limited, doesn't it? If I define myself by, by a, a, an emotional habit pattern, huh? the shape of my life looks pretty small. And, of course, that's not what this path is teaching about. This path is really teaching about the remarkable capacity each of us has, actually, for profound freedom, for profound compassion, for profound kindness, you know, for immeasurable, immeasurable equanimity and joy and kindness. And I think we need to plant that seed in the midst of this mind that says, I'm a type. Because if you have a mind that says, I'm a type, it looks pretty far away from that, that possibility, doesn't it? It's a much smaller world. Okay, so if I ask you, that's my preamble done. Now we're getting into actually what it says in these, this collection of discourses about that. Okay, so here's the problem. Let's look at the problem. We have repetitive habit patterns. We walk in circles and we keep ending up in the same place. Okay, so let's see what are we going to do with that. Well, we're actually going to start by being mindful. That is actually the start. You know, we are going to start with getting to know the landscape of this, not the definition of me, but getting to know the landscape of anxiety, getting to know the landscape of obsession, getting to know the landscape of contractedness, getting to know the landscape of, of envy or of rage. We, we get to know the landscape of this, you know, it's not as a type. Ah, but what is this? You know, what does this feel like? How do I know it? 
You know, just even if I take away the label, it all starts with mindfulness. Unless we know what's going on, <laughs> there's not much chance of change, is there? So it all starts with mindfulness. That's always the first, you know, bottom line response. It's so important. But then actually, you know, it's interesting how the Buddha brings in this encouragement to reflect. Reflect upon what's going on. Reflect upon the effect. Reflect upon the outcome. You know, to, to look, look at the rages, the fears, the obsessions, the judgment. Look them in the eye and ask yourself, where do they lead? Where do they lead? Where do they take us? Do they take us towards a greater sense of freedom? Or do they take us away from a sense of freedom? Do they take us towards a greater sense of possibility? Or do they take us towards a greater sense of contractedness? Now, reflecting upon this is, is not a kind of invitation for judgment. Um, it, it, it's not an abstract reflection. It's actually something that's very applied. You know, get a moment of anxiety. And instead of, you know, diving in and saying, I'm going to worry about the, everything in the world, ask yourself, where does this lead? Where does this take me? Because we're moving towards a place of choice, aren't we? We're moving always to this place of a capacity to, to make wise choices, resting upon having a dialogue with that which feels intractable. What is the impact upon, of this upon my life? And do I need to entertain it? Do I need to entertain it? Knowing that every time we entertain these patterns, it's like volunteering for suffering. And sometimes we know, we know this, and, 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 and we, we still make the choices to entertain it. Maybe we have it. You know, there is something I, I call, I, I think in one of my groups, I called it a positive discontent. I would also call it a mature dissatisfaction. You know, there's a very immature dissatisfaction, isn't it, which is just about blame and anger and fixing and busyness and agitation and not good enough. And there's also, I think, a very important mature dissatisfaction involved in the process of transformation. And that's the kind of dissatisfaction, you know, that really looks in the eye of some of these circular loops and says, I think I've done this enough. You know, I think that's enough. Like maybe I really don't need it, you know, that this doesn't have a, a life of its own. It doesn't have an independent self-existence. Sometimes the way that I'm co-opting into this circular patterning is through the very identities that I'm feeding in and saying this is who I am. And maybe sometimes it's enough to say actually, you know, this is enough. It's a kind of like a, a gentle resolve. You know, it, it's like if you drop something in the pond out back, you know, and you go and look for it by stirring it around with a stick, you know, all you're going to get is a whole lot of mud. And sometimes we need to stop stirring. We need to stop stirring. We need to kind of, you know, not, not do this just once, but, you know, a hundred times. Just start, you know, habit patterns are habits because they're repeated including psychological habits. And maybe if we can find that willingness to stop stirring and to step back and not repeat, maybe 
They don't have the fuel to keep circling. The second, second uh, suggestion the Buddha made is, is really an encouragement to remember what's too important to forget. You know, it's, so, it's very sad, isn't it, that when we're in the grip of the most difficult and painful habit patterns like obsession or preoccupation or rumination or self-judgment or blaming, you know what disappears are the companions that we need most. And those actually are the Brahma-Baharas. Kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. You notice how in states of distress, these are the first things to go, aren't they? It's like we forget about them, and we forget about their genuine possibility, and yet these are the times when they're most sorely needed. And we teach ourselves to remember what is too important to forget. Our capacity to approach the difficult through the eyes of the Brahma-Baharas, through the eyes of friendliness, through the eyes of compassion and joy and equanimity. We remember that it's, it, it, mindfulness is too important to forget in these moments. And sometimes we need to ask ourselves, what is our heart committed to in the midst of this? It's a quality of remembering. Sometimes, you know, that we, have, we don't have choices about what arises, but sometimes the only choice we have is how we attend and what we attend to. The third of the suggestions that the Buddha made is that when we see our hearts and minds in the grip of ill will or judgment or sorrow, Consciously bring into being what is missing. Consciously bring into being what is missing. Think of a moment of contractedness. What is missing? You know, a moment of contractedness created through identification. What is really missing in that moment? It's a sense of spaciousness, isn't it? How do you bring into being that which is missing? you learn to turn your attention towards it. It's not that difficult, actually. You know, you stand outside and you look at the space around the silhouette of the tree. You know, perhaps if you find yourself contracted in a painful area of the body, you take your attention to somewhere that is well, where there's a greater sense of ease. Perhaps if we're lost in aversion and we see that kindness is gone, we consciously cultivate metta. Perhaps we learn to make room for joy not contrive it, but we learn to actually allow ourselves to be touched. Pay attention, you know, consciously cultivate what is missing. Now, it's interesting, in, in some of these discourses, when the Buddha's going through these lists of suggestions, you know, he clearly is very practical and you know, very realistic, you know, because after he asks, offers a suggestion, you know, the discourse will go on and say, and if it still arises, you know, so clearly, you know, clearly got a, a good take on human psychology here, you know. And if it still arises, all is not lost. Now, it's interesting that one of the qualities of wise effort is the abandoning of the unwholesome or the unskillful that has already arisen. That sounds very threatening if you're a mindfulness teacher. <laughs> Abandon? No, whatever. <laughs> when he's using abandon, the abandoning here, he's using it in a very specific way. He's not, he's not talking about dissociating. He's not talking about 
you know, annihilating or numbing out or anything like this. This word abandoning means, uh, you know, I'm actually just, uh, I, I'm just not going to hold this. I'm not going to be with this. I'm, I'm just simply not going to attend to this. I'm not going to attend to it. By cultivating what is wholesome and skillful. So it's abandon it. It's it's a difficult one, you know. And it, it it's always this interesting, you know. This is useful sometimes, you know. There's a real skillfulness sometimes in staying, or absolute skillfulness in staying with the difficult. But if you are in danger of being overwhelmed, if you are under resourced because you're tired, or because you have no energy. If you're under-resourced because your your mind feels feels weary or exhausted, there is a danger in staying with the difficult. If you get overwhelmed, what is what is the outcome of that? You just lose confidence. You 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 lose your, your confidence in your own capacity. You feel battered by your own mind. There are times when it is truly important to step away and to take your attention elsewhere. It might be in the midst of pain, taking your attention to somewhere that is neutral. It might be taking your attention to, to meta. But you, take, you step back from the difficult. And it's not saying to the difficult, not this, not ever. You know, I'm never going to be with you. It's saying, not this, not now. Not this, not now. I learned, I learned to find the way to, to resource again inwardly to gather again the spaciousness, the steadiness, the calmness, to be able to return and have a dialogue rather than be assaulted by. You know, so it, and then the Buddha says, okay, you know, if it, if it still arises, still arises, he, he, he says, maybe you just need to establish more, more ground, you know? Maybe the mind is not really strengthened enough yet to be with the difficult. You know, maybe you need to actually give more attention to building some of these building blocks of stillness, of one-pointedness, of, 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 of calm. You know, maybe you're asking too much of yourself to approach the difficult when you don't have those building blocks in place. You know, get more still, spend more time, uh, you know, develop those capacities of our mind to be steady. You know, the Buddha says, I know of no one thing that can cause so much harm as an untrained mind. But though once understood, I know of no one thing that can be such a friend as a well-trained mind. You know? And we don't leave training our mind, believe me, for crisis moments. You know, that's too late, I'm sorry. You know. If we're leaving training our hearts in stillness and collectedness and to those moments when our world falls apart and we say, oh, you know, this is a time I really need that one, you know, that steadiness, we've left it too late. Training our hearts is, is a lifetime commitment. It's a lifetime journey. It's not something we, we think we can pull out of the bag in moments of tragedy. It is actually, it is what, it's why we ask people to practice. You know, it's, it's why we cultivate the practice, because this is our greatest friend. It's a well-trained heart.
The discourse goes on. It says, if it still arises, we might actually even begin to look if we have some enchantment with our habit patterns. You know, sometimes they're, they're familiar. There's a lot of safety and familiarity, even when, even when it's difficult, you know. But have you ever found yourself like, uh, well, well, for example, how many new thoughts have you had today? <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing sometimes, isn't it? We have a lot of the same loops, don't we? A lot of the same loops. And, and we go round and round and round and round. You know, and this is the nature, of course, of rumination. It's the nature of obsession. But, you know, I think in terms of, of Buddhist psychology, you know, obsession is defined by having the same thought more than twice. <laughs> but, but don't you see it? You know, the patterns of fear, the patterns of self-judgment, the, pat the patterns of unworthiness. We go round and round and round. And it's like we, we keep expecting something different to happen. You know, it's almost feeling like if I just go around that one more time, that last magical, that piece of magical insight that I've been missing, it's going to get, it's going to be discovered. But instead, we just go around again. And you know, sometimes the insight well is dry, like there aren't, aren't any more insights to happen. You know, like, I know, you know, my childhood. I know what, and, and this is very important, clear comprehension, to know how we came to be where we are and who we believe ourselves to be. It's very good to have that. It's very important to have that understanding and that knowledge. But it's actually, it's not such a long story, actually. I mean, I know how I got to be where I am now and everything that shaped me in my life, you know. And, and but, so that, that's important to know. But then, then we almost keep feeling like if I keep repeating, searching, scouring, going around that circle again, there'll be some more insight. Maybe there isn't any more, and maybe now it's a habit pattern. Maybe now it's a habit pattern. You know, and maybe I have all the insight I have, and all that I need. And now I more need to learn to undo the habit pattern, hmm? or to step out of the habit pattern, to, to know, you know, it's a kind of, I think in Tibetan, the, the word for, for samsara, this being caught in this circular existence, actually means walking in circles. Huh? means walking in circles. And we're learning to stop walking in circles. To learning to free the mind of the moment. To learn to free the mind of the moment. To look at how what keeps that circularity going so often is the view of self. The view of self requires a, a story to keep supporting it. And, you know, as, as uh, you know, psychologist Paul Brox once said, you know, I am not telling the story of myself. The story is telling me who I am. That's a different perspective, isn't it? The story is telling me who I am. Hmm? Think about it going around those circles, you know, those circles of, of definition and judgment and obsession. The story is telling me who I am. Hmm? It's not the other way around. And so sometimes we learn to kind of stop, uh, stop again, as John mentioned last night, giving so much credibility to the story. 
because it is constantly telling me who I am moment to moment. Think, think about that for yourself. If you could have those thoughts, self-judging thoughts, you know, thoughts of inadequacy, you know, thoughts of unworthiness. Would we actually tell people in mindfulness training to learn to see a thought as a thought? An event in the mind, something that is passing through. We're learning to take the selfing out, and then the thoughts arise and they pass, but they're not con continually creating identity. <laughs> well, in, in this long list, actually, the Buddha also says, you know, if it still arises, ask for help. <laughs> That's also true. Sometimes we need other voices in our stories, don't we? We need other voices in there that kind of, you know, shift our perspectives, question our, our, our views, question our opinions about ourselves. A lot of what we do here is, is to kind of like opening, opening the doors that feel very closed and, and to actually to know that we start from that base of capacity. We start from that base of having the capacity to develop and to bring into being a mind that is unshakable, a heart that is rooted in unshakable compassion and kindness and joy, the capacity for profound understanding and freedom within ourselves. And we start, that is our starting ground. That is our starting ground. Then we're looking at, with curiosity, with investigation, that which gets in the way, and we start to look at this interplay between knowing, understanding, and responding, which is, of course, the wise effort. When to be with something, and sometimes that's powerful in itself, and when actually to bring about a kind of more applied questioning, born of a sort of mature dissatisfaction, where we're unwilling to actually live in a, live in a house that's too small for us. Where we start to be unwilling to live in a house or an identity that is just too small. Okay, thank you your attention. If we just have a moment quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.